Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn once again to the book of Ezra. This morning we'll be in Ezra chapter 9. We've been working our way through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're almost done with Ezra. We will make it through Nehemiah. And if you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find this passage on page 381. 381 on the Pew Bible in front of you. And I encourage all of you, whichever Bible you're using, to keep your Bible open to refer to it as we work our way through the text. You remember we've made it through one batch, one wave of exiles that have come back to the land of Jerusalem. God has stirred up uh, Cyrus, the leader, the king, and he has stirred up his people to return. And so the first six chapters of Ezra were this first batch of exiles returning back to the land. And we saw there was victory and triumph, and they've uh, rebuilt the temple, and overall it's been joyous. Um, but there has been a bit of opposition but now we're with the second wave returning to Israel. God has stirred up another group, and he has sent them by the leadership of Ezra to go back to the land of Jerusalem once again. And so we would expect one more time to see opposition. But this time, the great opposition is not on the outside, it's on the inside. And it's not just inside in the sense that it's the people of Israel who are their own greatest enemy, but it is their sin. It is the sin within them. Opposition has been from without, but now the greatest enemy is the sin within. You remember with the first wave of exiles, God revived them by the preaching of his word through Haggai and Zechariah. And God had built them up and was rebuilding them by his word. But now sin is crouching at the door. It is devouring the people of God. The people of God have been rebuilt by the preaching of the word of God. And you understand that when you hear God's word faithfully taught, if you give it long enough, God's word will expose the deepest sins of your heart. Not because of the preacher, but because of God's word. When you look at the history of revival in our nation and in our world, that's one mark that people don't always want to talk about. We say we want revival, but we don't necessarily want to confess our sins. Every time you see a true work of God, you see it beginning with the confession of sin. And you can't generate that. You can't manufacture that. You can generate emotion. You can stir people up in their, in their hearts and their minds with, with music, and you can get them uh, all jazzed up. You can play the music at just the right beat, and you can get it loud, and you can get the hair standing up on the back of your neck and goosebumps on your arm. You can manufacture all of that, but you can't manufacture the confession of sin. You can't generate true repentance. You can't fake stillness over your sin and trembling at the word of God. And that's on full display in Ezra chapter 9 this morning. If I were to sum it all up, it would be in one simple sentence. Our sins are exceedingly sinful, but our Savior exceedingly saves. Our sins are exceedingly sinful, but our Savior exceedingly saves. It really is that simple. And it really is that important. So if you found your place in God's word, as we consider the exceeding sinfulness of sin this morning from Ezra chapter 9, I would invite you to stand for the reading of the scriptures. We are going to examine the whole chapter, but for now we will read verses 1 through 5. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. 
For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives with, for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would take your words, words that are for our good, but words that will likely make us uncomfortable. Lord, help us to love your word more than we love life. May your words be sweeter than honey. May they be more precious to us than silver and gold. We pray these things in the power of your spirit, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Ezra chapter 9 really divides itself nicely into three sections. And as we work through the three sections, we're going to ask ourselves three questions. One question at the end of each section. You begin with verses 1 through 2, and it really introduces us to the problem. This problem that we don't like to talk about, even in church, the problem of sin. Did you see that there in verses 1 through 2? Sin is now on a full display. Sin has been hiding in the shadows as we've been reading the book of Ezra, but now sin takes the center stage. With that first group of exiles back in chapter 6, you may have noticed uh, when they dedicated the temple, they offered a sin offering. Well, if you bring a sin offering, it's because you have sinned. It really is that straightforward. And then last week, right at the end of chapter 8, uh, even as Ezra is leading the people and they made it safely back to Jerusalem, they offered all of those animals that were listed there as a sin offering. Once again, showing that these are still a sinful people. But now, sin is on full display. And it's being brought to our attention, not by Ezra himself, but by the officials. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, the officials or the princes, depending on your translation. These are the civic leaders of the people. And they come to Ezra and they say, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. And then you had that, that list of names there. And uh, it should sound familiar, I hope, to you because Pastor Laramie read it, you know, like 10, 15 minutes ago. And so you heard it mentioned there in Deuteronomy chapter 7. But remember, Deuteronomy, that's the first five books. Ezra, we've come a long way in the history of God's people. If you actually checked these different people groups here, it's actually an outdated list. Most of the people here are not still active, present, current enemies of the people of God. But Ezra has been preaching the word of God. And these officials, these, these princes, they have heard God's word. And they recognize that even though the names have changed, the years have passed, the temptation is still the same. And so the same deadly threat that existed back in Moses' day still exists in Ezra's day. And so the people come and they uh, recognize that they have not separated themselves from these people. But what does that mean? that they haven't separated themselves. Well, verse 2 helps us see, for they have taken some of the daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons. And so we'll pause there. We understand that this is a marriage problem. 
It's a marriage problem. And we really want to pause and lean in to what is going on here. Because at first glance, something just doesn't sound right. It sounds like God is telling his people to, to not marry any foreigners, to only marry within their own people group. Uh, it seems like the issue may even be skin color. It may be racism. That's what it looks like at first glance. So we have to ask ourselves, is that what is going on here in the text? Is ethnicity the problem? No. You understand that throughout the Bible, even in the Old Testament, you have leaders, godly men, who are listed as marrying foreign wives, and they're never condemned for it because the implication is that their wives adopted their religion. They adopted the worship of the one true God of Israel. Moses had a foreign wife from Midian. I believe y'all talked about her, Zipporah, just a little bit this morning in Sunday school. All right, God, God never condemns Moses for marrying her. In fact, she literally saves her family's skin. You also have Joseph who married somebody there uh, while he was in Egypt. He's never condemned for that. Uh, Boaz marries Ruth. Uh, he's never condemned for marrying a Moabite woman. You go all the way down to Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. You have a list of these foreign women, and they are included proudly, honorably, in the genealogy of Jesus. The issue is not what nation they come from. The issue is not their skin color. So what is the problem? Well, you heard the warning in Deuteronomy 7 earlier. I want to read part of it again. Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4. God told them, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. That's the problem. That's the concern, is that by marrying people from another nation, you're going to adopt their religion rather than worshiping the one true God of Israel. The issue is sin, not skin. God warned them again in Deuteronomy 20 that they will teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. You understand that the problem is not racism, it's religious. That's the concern. We have already seen, even as the choir has sang this morning, that the gospel is for all people. We saw this already back in Ezra chapter 6. Do you remember when they celebrated that first Passover after they're finally back and settled in the land? And it said in Ezra 6 verse 21 that the priest and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. And so they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles and for their fellow priests and for themselves. Listen, it was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Even before this happens, it's already been made clear that all are welcome to come, but you must truly worship the God of Israel. You must leave behind your foreign gods and adopt the worship of the one true living God of Yahweh. And so it's not an issue of ethnicity. It's not an issue of skin color. All nations, all tribes, all tongues will be gathered around the throne of God. We've already seen that in Revelation chapter 7. That's why you yourselves just saying, let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball. The gospel is for the whole earth. But now it may sound a little bit confusing by the text that we have before us. Because right there in the middle of verse 2, this translation, the English Standard Version, says, so that the holy race 
has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. I gotta be honest, I'm no uh, Hebrew expert, but that's not the best translation to put forward for several reasons. Number one, the Bible actually teaches us that there's one human race. Now we understand that for generations we've talked about different races of people, but to be biblically precise, we should speak in terms of ethnicities because there's one human race. Eve is the mother of all living. And so it's not an issue of different races of people, but different ethnicities of people. And when the Bible speaks here about a, a holy race, it's really referring to the holy seed, the holy offspring. And it points us back to that guy, Abraham. He keeps coming up over and over throughout the Bible. Remember the promises that were made to Abraham? And that to Abraham, from his offspring, would come this promised seed, the one who would ultimately be the seed of Eve, the one who would grow up and would crush the head of the serpent and would defeat sin and Satan and death. That's the holy seed. That's the holy offspring that we're looking for. But at this point in the story, in Ezra, he hasn't come yet. And the offspring of Abraham, they're intermarrying with all sorts of nations and they're adopting their worship. And so the question is really in jeopardy. Will the promised seed of God, will he come through his people, Israel? And that's the issue here with this so-called holy race, a holy seed, a holy offspring, would be a much more helpful way to think about this. Now, I understand that all of this with issues of marriage, and you're probably already going in your mind to what about today for Christians, and, and uh, should believers marry unbelievers? straightforward answer is no, Christians should marry Christians. But all of these questions related to marriage and divorce will actually come up again next week in chapter 10. And so I'm going to hold off on those, so don't go anywhere. Come back next week as we look at Ezra chapter 10. Because this morning, even though there's this one particular sin that's being discussed in Ezra chapter 9, chapter 9 gives us a really good example, a good opportunity to think about sin in general. So while many families, many people you know, are affected by this issue of remarriage, of marrying non-believers, all sorts of things, we'll get to that in chapter 10. But for now, I want us to think precisely about sin in general. How should we understand it? You know that God has called his people to live holy, set-apart lives. He told them that all the way back in Exodus. Exodus 19, right before he gave them the Ten Commandments, he said, I want you to be set-apart you're going to live holy lives. You will be a nation, a kingdom of priests. But they're not living like it right now. In fact, they have embraced the abominations, it says, the idolatry, the idols of the nations around them. You see that warning, that example, all throughout the Old Testament. When Solomon marries all these other wives, the wives turn his heart astray. That's just one example you see in the Old Testament. And that's the issue there. But you know what? If you had gone and asked them, if you'd gone and asked these leaders and said, hey, have you stopped worshiping the one true God? They would say, no, of course not. We're still worshiping God, but we're also worshiping, you know, the God of Egypt and the God of Moab. We've just added somebody else alongside him, but we haven't stopped worshiping him. In fact, they don't see the severity of their sin. Did you notice how far the sin has gone? It's the sin of faithlessness, it says at the end of verse 2. In this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men have been foremost. Now, faithlessness would be abandoning the faith. That's what's going on here. And so you understand the leaders that should have been leading God's people in faithfulness are actually leading them in faithlessness. The ones who should have been leading God's people in righteousness are actually leading God's people in rebellion. 
oh, the severity of their sin. Sin is not skulking down the back alley anymore. It's marching right down Main Street, right up the steps into the temple, and it's being committed by the highest leaders in the land. And did you notice how we learned about this sin at all? It's not because Ezra's doing some investigation. He's not going around checking up on the leaders. The leaders have heard God's word preached. Ezra's been back in the land about four months. He's been doing all the responsibilities that the king gave him, as we saw last week. But through the preaching of God's word, the people have come under conviction. And they've heard Deuteronomy. And they've recognized, oh my goodness, the names have changed but we're committing the same sins that were warned about back there in Deuteronomy chapter 7. You understand that God's word really does work. It really does convict people. And so these men, these leaders have heard God's word, and they've recognized the sin that was ensnaring them. So I want to ask you, do you see your sins? Does the study of God's word, does the reading of the scriptures, does it cause you to actually see your sinful condition? It may not happen every day, but if you go day after day, week after week, year after year, reading your Bible, and your Bible reading never actually convicts you of sin. You never see yourself, not in the good guys, but in the bad guys, recognizing I'm a whole lot like them. I'm far more like them than I want to admit. God's Word does that. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to joints and marrow. So do you see your sin? Verses 3 through 5, we keep moving. We see Ezra's response and the people's response to their sin. And it's a very physical response. Did you notice that? He's, he's tearing his clothes. He's pulling out hair. These are tangible signs of deep, deep sorrow. It was very common when somebody had died or when somebody was about to die to express your sorrow in this way. Do you grieve over your sin in this way? Think about the deepest sorrow of losing a spouse, losing a, fa losing a family member, losing a loved one. Have you ever grieved over your sin that deeply? Have you ever recognized how your sin offends our holy God? Do you notice that no one comes to Ezra, pats him on the back and says, Ezra, you're just overreacting. You're just taking this too seriously. You're just taking sin way too seriously, Ezra. Nobody does that. Nobody corrects Ezra. In fact, we're given his lengthy prayer, verses 6 through 15, as a sign from the narrator and as ultimately a sign from God. Ezra's not overreacting. He's the one who's reacting appropriately. He's the one who knows the word of God. He knows it better than anyone else in the land. And when he sees their sin, he recognizes how serious it is. In fact, his physical posture points to the posture of his heart. You see there in verse 5 that he's falls upon his knees, his hands are spread out to the Lord. He's fallen prostrate before the Lord. And that, rec that shows us the condition of his heart, how he's broken over his sin. Actually, it's the sin of the people. Ezra hasn't committed any of these sins. But Ezra's not alone. The other people are there with him. And don't miss them in verse 4. Did you notice how they're described? All who trembled at the words the God of Israel. They trembled because they know they're hearing truly from the one true and living God. We've talked about earlier in our study of Ezra that 
Number one, most of the time people just skip Ezra altogether in their preaching. And when they come to Nehemiah in preaching, it's usually for leadership principles. Look at what a good leader Nehemiah is. Well, certainly we can learn leadership principles from Ezra and Nehemiah. But you understand hopefully already that that's not the point. There's a whole lot more going on than just how to be a good leader. But if you want to think about leadership, look at what Ezra is leading the people to do. He's leading them to confess their sins, to grieve over their wicked condition. Listen to what God says in Isaiah 66. He says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Do you tremble at the word of God? Do you grieve over your sin when you recognize how you have fallen short? Do you grieve this sin? Often we can be filled with regret over sin. Some Christians go through their Christian life and they're just filled with regret. Regret is recognizing that Christ has forgiven our sins, but, but we can't let it go. Maybe you've said this before, don't raise your hand, don't admit to it. But perhaps you've said, I know that Christ has forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. Have you ever heard somebody say that? You recognize that when someone says that, they're, they're saying that they have higher standards than God. God says he's forgiven you, but I just can't let it go. I can't receive the forgiveness that is in Christ. I'm filled with regret. That's not the Christian way. We should embrace the forgiveness found in Christ. But sometimes other Christians are burdened down by guilt. You understand there's a difference in regret and guilt. Sometimes Christians are guilty because they haven't actually confessed their sin. Someone has compared it to uh, cleaning uh, taking care of your car and changing the oil in your car, cleaning out the gunk. Uh, Don, if you thought about a Model A, Model A's would be almost 100 years old, right? At least 90 years old. And imagine if you had not changed the oil in a Model A. The last person that changed the Model A oil was Henry Ford. Can you imagine how much gunk would be built up in there? It may not even run right at all. So it is sometimes in our Christian life. We haven't uh, stopped being a Christian. Once Christ saves us, no one can pluck us from his hand. But sometimes we've got the gunk built up because we haven't actually confessed our ongoing sins. We haven't come to Christ knowing that he can cleanse us and make us more like Christ. It's also a lot like communication in marriage. If you take the position that men, don't, don't do this, but if you told your wife, listen, I told you on the day that we got married that I love you, and if anything changes, I'll let you know. You understand that's not going to be a marriage that lasts long. You affirm over and over your love for your spouse. And when you have communication issues, you talk and you work it out. If you never actually apologize for anything that you've done, men recognize that's not leading, that's just lying. You're not being honest because we've all fallen short. And to make our marriages and our homes healthy, we must communicate. So it is in our relationship with Christ. You, you wonder sometimes why we have this time of confession, a, a hymn of confession, a prayer of confession in our service. And you, you think, what, what are these guys asking us to do? Do they want us to get saved all over again? Of course not. We understand that we are saved, but we understand even this week we have sinned against our God. And if you're normal, and that includes all of us, most of us have not taken time to actually confess our sins to God to restore that fellowship with Christ, to clean out the gunk in our life that's bogging down our relationship 
with Christ. To, to put it a different way, do we have a time of confession in church to make you feel worse? No, it's to make you feel better. To be cleansed by the gospel, to recognize that even all those things, all the baggage that has built up this week that you've brought into the service and you're trying to get it out of your mind, knowing that Christ is bigger than all of that. He can cleanse us and he can restore us from our sins. So we ask ourselves, as we move through, we've asked, do you see your sins? And do you grieve over your sins? But verses 6 through 15, we've got to ask the question, what do we say about our sins? When you read the whole prayer, verses 6 through 15, um, you will notice a couple of things. You'll notice that Ezra piles up words about their sinful condition. He's not satisfied to just say, oh, God, we've sinned. Can you forgive us? No, he describes it in great detail. He piles up words describing what has happened. One word is not enough. He speaks about their iniquities. He speaks about their uncleanness. He speaks about their abominations. He says their sins have brought great shame and great guilt. Their shame points to their hopelessness. Apart from God, they have no hope, and they are covered in shame. And their guilt points to their responsibility. They understand that it's really true. This isn't imagined. They really are guilty before God. Poor Ezra. If he'd only lived today, somebody would have corrected him. If Ezra lived today, somebody would have said, Oh, no, don't take it so seriously. It's just a mistake. It's just an accident. You've just slipped up, Ezra. Don't, don't make such a big deal out of it. Sin isn't really all that bad. There would be Christians today standing at the ready to reinterpret the Bible, minimizing sin. They would say, God, is the environment that you put us in. Remember, we've been in exile for decades. I mean, can you really blame us for our sinful condition, our sinful actions? Like Adam in the garden, they might say, Lord, it's the woman that you gave me. They would make excuses, never taking responsibility for their sins. Ezra doesn't take that attitude. Listen to verses 6 and 7. He says, Oh, my God, I am ashamed, and I blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. We are drowning in our sin, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Notice that Ezra begins to shift from the singular to the plural. He says, from the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And our, for our iniquities, we and our kings and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. Ezra summarizes their history. He does it quite well, recognizing that it is their sin that has brought them to their present condition. But it raises an interesting question because Ezra is confessing sins that he did not personally commit. And so he's leading the people to confess their sins. He's identifying with them as their leader. But it makes us ask the question, is that something we're supposed to do? Because it's been popular in recent years for Christians, Christian leaders, Christian denominations to say, well, listen, we need to apologize and confess for sins that happened a long time ago. We need to confess the sins of segregation and of slavery. And before that, they told us we needed to confess uh, the witch trials. And before that, they told us we needed to confess the crusades. They will just keep finding things that happened a long, long time ago that aren't happening today and tell us we need to confess those sins. Is that what Ezra is teaching us? I don't think so. Because notice that he says from the days of our fathers to this day. This sin is still going on. Ezra is witness to the sin that is plaguing the land. 
Yes, he's identifying with them. He didn't personally commit these sins, but he's leading them to confess a present sin, not a past sin that ended a long time ago. You know, it's actually easier to confess sins that happened way, way back yonder that you had nothing to do with. You want to talk about leadership, lead people to confess sins that they're actually still committing. We keep moving, verse 8. He says, but now, but now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God. Remember that the good hand of our God is upon us, they said in chapter 7 and 8. He says, to leave us a remnant, a faithful few, and to give us a secure hold within his holy place. He's literally saying God has given us a tent peg in the temple to hang on to. God has not abandoned his people. He has preserved his remnant. Ezra keeps going that our God may brighten our eyes. It's a picture of somebody on their deathbed suddenly recovering their health, their eyes brightening in better health. And grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery. Three times right there in one little section, he talks about their condition of being in slavery. You say, wait a minute, I thought God brought them out of that. They're back in the land. Haven't we seen these kings doing all this mighty stuff? In the grand scheme of it all, what the kings did really didn't matter a whole lot. It was really about what God was doing. And they recognized because of their sin, they're still enslaved to their sin. But God has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia. We've seen that. Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, all these kings. God has extended his steadfast love, his grace, to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. Israel has experienced revival in the past, revival out of slavery, revival to rebuild, but because of sin, they find themselves in their same situation again, needing reviving. And Ezra cries out to God, pleading that God would revive them. It reminds me of what Peter says in Acts chapter 3. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, and that times of refreshing, reviving, may come from the presence of God. That's a wonderful prayer to pray for the first time. For those who've never repented and trusted Christ, it's a wonderful prayer for the hundredth time as we keep clinging to the gospel, keep clinging to Christ to make us more like himself. God has been faithful, but they have been faithless. God has not forsaken them, but they have forsaken his commandments. Verse 10, and now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets. And then in the rest of 11 and 12, he summarizes scripture. Some of it that we saw in, chapter, in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Some of it different passages of the Old Testament. But Ezra knows God's word so well. It comes so naturally to him that he's praying it back to the Lord. Verse 13, he says, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved. Wait a minute. Have you ever thought about your sin from that point of view? that God has punished us less than we deserve. The old preacher said, you must own your sufferings are not as great as your sins. No matter how much suffering we may endure in this life, it's never as much as we've sinned against God. 
No matter how great the judgment we may think that we're undergoing the chastening hand of God as he disciplines his children whom he loves, it's never as great as the justice that we deserve for sinning against God. Ezra says, you've punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and you have given us such a remnant as this. You've preserved us until this day. Look at verse 14. He says, shall we break your commandments again? and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations. Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? There's a real danger that Ezra sees that if they don't repent, if they don't stop intermingling with other nations and watering down the promised seed of God, then God may actually wipe them out. He's been gracious up until this point, but they have no guarantee that he will continue to show them mercy. Verse 15, he says, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. And this final question that we must consider, what do you say about your sin? Do you use the world's terms or do you use God's terms? Do you minimize your sin or do you recognize that the smallest sin is a maximum offense against our holy God? Do you see the exceeding sinfulness of sin? Did you notice that Ezra doesn't actually ask for forgiveness? It's implied, but he doesn't just rush to forgiveness as if it were so easy, such an easy thing for God to just hand out, just taking for granted that forgiveness is available. Well, I told you there are three questions, but there's actually one more. As we think of all of these things, what do we do about our sin? If we see the exceeding sinfulness of sin, what do we do about it? Our sins are exceedingly sinful, but our Savior exceedingly saves. When I hear Ezra there in verse 14, and he's thinking about, are we going to continue in this sin? Are we going to keep doing this generation after generation? I can't help but think of Romans chapter 6, verse 1 where Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. May it never, ever be. For the Christian, when we see our ongoing spiritual condition, when we see the sins that we still wrestle with in this life, the answer should not be, I'll just keep doing it. Christ has forgiven me. Everything's going to be fine. That's a dangerous place to be in. But as I think about Ezra here in verse 15, and he declares that God is just. O oh Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. I again think about Romans, but Romans chapter 3, where Paul says that God is both just and the justifier, that he saves us and cleanses us through pouring out his justice on his son, Jesus Christ. Dear sinner, do you feel the weight of your sins? Come to Jesus. Receive his grace by faith. Ezra leaves us on a note asking, who can stand? When we see our sinful condition, who can stand? He sounds just like the psalmist in Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? Apart from Christ, we can't. We have no hope. There's one way to stand, and we stand through the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, 
and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Dear sinners, this is the gospel. Receive it by faith. And dear saints, this is the gospel. Continue in it, walk in it, stand in it by faith. Our sins are exceedingly sinful, but our Savior exceedingly saves. He's able to save to the uttermost. As we think about God's Word and how do we respond to God's Word, the passages have been all about sin, and we recognize the cleansing that comes through Christ. So we're not going to rush right into singing. We're going to take a moment. God's Word, the obvious response to this passage would be to confess sins. Perhaps as you've heard God's Word preached and you've thought back on your life, the Spirit has brought to mind sins even from this week that you have not confessed, that you need to just take a moment right where you are, confessing your sins to the Lord, knowing that He is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins and to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Perhaps you're here this morning and you recognize you've never actually repented and trusted Christ for salvation. Know that as we sing, as the service continues, even at the end of the service, Pastor Laramie and I would love to speak with you about knowing Christ through the gospel. But if the Lord has been so gracious to you this morning to remind you of unconfessed sin, don't waste this opportunity. Take time to confess it before the Lord even now. If you recognize that you've sinned against a brother or sister here in this very room, don't waste time. Go to them even now, confessing your sins and seeking forgiveness. So we're going to take a moment to take comfort in the gospel and be cleansed in the gospel. We're going to have a time of silence. I want to give you time to actually pray. And after an appropriate amount of time, I'm going to pray for us, and then we will continue. Let's have a time of silent reflection on God's word. Listen as I offer a prayer that's been prayed by many generations of Christians before us. O oh, changeless God, under the conviction of thy spirit, we learn that the more we do, the worse we are. The more we know, the less we know. The more holiness that we have, the more sinful we are. The more we love, the more there is to love. O oh, wretched men and women that we are. Lord, we have wild hearts and we cannot stand before you. How little we love your truth and your ways. We neglect prayer by thinking that we've prayed enough and, and we are earnestly knowing that you've saved our souls and so we become hypocrites. But grant that we would not be evangelical hypocrites who sin more safely because grace abounds, who tell ourselves that our lusts are cleansed by Christ's blood and so we can continue in them. 
who reason that God cannot cast us into hell. For we are saved. Lord, we love preaching, we love our church, we love fellow brothers and sisters, but we often live unholy lives. Our minds are a bucket without a bottom, with no spiritual understanding, no desire for the Lord's day, ever learning but never reaching the truth, always at the gospel well, but never holding water. Our consciences are without conviction or contrition, with nothing to repent of. Our wills are without power of decision or resolution. Our hearts are without affection and full of leaks. Our memory has no retention, so we forget easily the lessons that we've learned, and your truths seep away. Father, give us broken hearts that yet carry home the water of grace. For Christ's sake, hear our prayer. Amen.